And Janelle, for my favourite part of the day, I'm quite certain I have been waiting for a very long time to talk to Emily Dowding-Smith, who is kind of an ex-Welly girl, an environment lawyer and scientist who has just returned from a test-run snorkelling in the Arctic as part of a team of 10 women selected for the Sedna expedition. And she was the only Kiwi Wow, Emily, welcome to B-Side Stories on Access Radio. Kia ora, Laurie. Thank you for having me. Yay, this is a big treat. So, first of all, can you tell our listeners, Emily, what was the mission of the Sedna expedition? It was a multifaceted (laughs) mission. Um, We headed up to the eastern coast of northeastern coast of Canada towards the Arctic and then um, crossed over to Greenland this just gone northern summer uh, to look at the basically to look at the impacts of sea ice melt in the snorkel zone which is an interesting and dynamic space Mm. in the ecosystem just Mm. above and below the water right yeah but also um talking to the communities that live in that area as well. Um, Just about the changes that they're going through, uh, basically around climate change and and other issues that they're having that are interconnected with that. Yeah. Well, um, that was the question I'm really wanting to get to. And since you brought it up, we may as well go (laughs) straight into that. I guess, you know, it's really hard when we're sitting in little old New Zealand, having the odd storm here and there to understand what's actually going on. What 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 is it like for these people? What are they experiencing? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So I was only there for a brief snapshot, I guess, right. of that. And right in the middle of summer, it's actually quite an right. interesting time because it can be quite warm. The water is really cold still, right. but yeah. the the surrounding area, a lot of the sea ice has melted. Um, although off the coast of Canada, there was still quite a lot of pack ice from um, from the winter remaining, which actually affected some of our trip because we couldn't get to some of the communities we wanted to. Right. But um, basically, through that snapshot, I, I got to have my very first experience in Inuit communities in mm. Canada and sort of a little bit in Greenland, but maybe mainly in Canada, right. and to see what, what it's like for them up there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just... It's so mystical to us from New Zealand anyway. You know, obviously we're more in touch with the Antarctic and so even going into these zones, let alone with the big project in mind, just sounds amazing to me anyway. (laughs) Yeah, it it was. I mean, I was was just fascinated by all aspects of it. So when we... When we first arrived, we flew in on a really small plane mm-hmm. to a remote community in Nain, Labrador. We were 10 women and a couple of film crew, and we were basically the only people on, on the plane to land. Uh, the communities are really remote, and the view from the air kind of gives you an indication of the ice and right. the surrounding areas with the mountains and the hills. But basically, unless you went by plane or boat, you wouldn't be able to get to these communities. They're really remote. Um, mm. They are all indigenous people so different to New Zealand in terms of colonial history some similarities with indigenous people but generally mainly just Inuit people living in Mm. these communities and um, yeah the conditions were quite in some cases quite shocking for me but also 
not really in the, you know in the scheme of things I mean it felt more like going to you didn't feel like you were in Canada anymore it felt more right. like being in um, other parts of perhaps more developing parts of the world that I've traveled in really hmm <laughs> I don't know whether to take that as a good thing <laughs> or not <laughs> with that um sorry just give me a moment there was a question I had there were the people aware were they living with a fear did they understand what was going on is that that part of their understanding or are they still living very day to day yeah I think it's both so the the everyday effects of of what they're seeing come through two key things that I observed and that's housing and food right Um, like most of us we're affected by where we live and what Mm. we eat for these communities most of the food comes in once a year on a large ship once a year yeah the majority of it and the rest is hunting and subsistence work so there are supermarkets don't get me wrong but everyday family would order in a year's supply of everything including toilet paper and have that stocked up um, there'd be very little waste cul- <laughs> a little waste culture perhaps yeah I guess in that regard mm. I hadn't really thought of it um, in that way so then of course there's also subsistence hunting and stuff that goes on but at the moment in the community we were in in Nain there's a ban on hunting caribou and caribou would, would be the majority of their diet so you might hunt and catch a couple of them and have them probably in the freezer and right. that would last your family for quite a while well due to overhunting and other population pressures some environmental factors probably but they can't always directly say um, but probably climatic change as well at the moment the populations are low in that area so they can't hunt them which means that the people are missing that food and what I thought was really Mm. fascinating because one of my interests is food is how that was such a cultural a deep cultural connection so that was more than just not eating it was like this is a part of us we don't feel full because that satisfies who we are and if you think of it from a I don't know, the equivalent of like a whakapapa and an ancestral connection to that food and that resource. Um, There's a lot more to it than just missing something to eat. So one innovative solution that I thought was pretty cool actually was a community freezer so they had like a community food bank where you could go and receive a donation of hunted meat to feed your family and that's no longer caribou but that might be seal or fish or other things so in that context it was pretty fascinating because you'd have like a food bank pretty much giving out bullets and gas to go out hunting um, and collect things and then share that communally amongst other people in nice. your community, which was a pretty modern and innovative way of addressing some of these issues. Or, I did or notice perhaps a very old way of yeah, exactly, yeah. but also <laughs> yeah, a combination, um, right? So I noticed when I first landed in Nain, there was a lot of kids fishing, and we were there doing community outreach for ocean conservation mainly, and climate change was also an, an, a flow on of that, but. We were there with the project um, in combination with um, the Vancouver Aquariums, one of the aquarists there, Ruby Bainwright. She's an amazing woman who does a lot of um, education through teaching kids how to learn more about the marine environment with these touch tanks. So these pretty small... um, glass or plastic, depending on where you are, cases that you fill up with water and pump it 
um, on the spot and then we'd go diving and pick up specimens from the ocean, put them in the touch tanks and then get the kids to come along and pick them up because the water's like between two and minus two degrees so they never go swimming there. So (laughs) there's a world that they've got no acquaintance with. Yeah, Yeah. so that's that's what we were doing. It was pretty crazy. We flew in on this little plane and we're like, yep, unload the aquariums, boom, 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 boom. And... (laughs) But at the same time, one of my first observations was, wow, there's a lot of people down on the wall fishing, thinking this is really cool. But as I looked more into the food security issue, I realized that that was a necessity along yeah. with the community freezer. The second observation with that was around going into the local supermarket, which was essentially empty of people and rather empty on the shelves. But there were some things, including like avocados and mangoes, but just overpriced. So you're like, so how can yeah. how can these people afford to buy this food? Clearly they can't. That's why there's no in the supermarket but you know there are some um, there's a mine up the up the valley with some people flying in and out so you know they have a a slight demand there Um, but yeah the second thing was housing so the in addition to food so the housing is an impact for them houses are overcrowded up to 15 people living in a in a house in, in many of these villages and now something that people here wouldn't really think about but the melting permafrost um that essentially melts the foundations of the houses, not melts them, sorry. It loosens the foundations because the ground would have once been frozen. So the changing soil and the changing erosion around that leads to instability. Some of the houses are falling down and there are a lot, I guess there's a lot more um, dramatic effects going on there as a result of climatic change than what we would see day to day. New Zealand's affected by climate change but it's in a different way and on a a different scale so if you're surrounded by sea ice and it melts and it doesn't come back then that's a pretty stark (laughs) contrast in your life right yes if you have increased frequency of storm events over a period of time you you probably psychologically get used to that actually and and don't see it in quite the same way particularly if you're not out hunting you're not Doing yeah, you're not dependent that. on an outside environment, outside world, mind you. Hopefully some people are listening to this show going, actually, <laughs> <laughs> I do depend on it. But yes, no, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Wow. What were your personal reasons for going, Emily? How did you end up on this, this journey? <laughs> I think there was quite a few. Um, curiosity was a big one. Right. I wanted to get out there and see some of these things that I've just talked about were things that I had wondered about and also Mm. I guess read or or thought about but never seen for myself I'd never been to the Arctic um, nor to those parts of Canada and Greenland I was also wanting to just do something different Um, like most people I sit in an office most of the day nine to five in front of a computer writing and whatnot and I just wanted to actually harness a part of me that is really outdoors focused and that I do love I love nature I love the environment I love being outside and and doing stuff and feeling like I'm making a difference in that space so I decided to sort of embrace this opportunity and go for it because it was pretty much a once in a lifetime chance to get involved with that and to meet some really incredibly focused talented and inspirational women and just be yeah spurred on by that and lots of aspects of my life yeah 
You must be the only person I know that has snorkeled in the Arctic. So you did get to do a bit of that. Oh yeah. You did get, so you, did you did you do a bit of the relay? How many how many kilometres did you end up doing a day, or, or how did that all work out? So this is it's not a normal thing. No. So okay. So to put it in context, um, the whole purpose of of the expedition was to go to these areas and to also do a proof of concept to see what it would be like to snorkel um, decent distances in Arctic conditions. And this idea sits amongst a a bigger goal for the expedition leader, Susan Eaton, which is to um, eventually snorkel the Northwest Passage. And she pulled together a fantastic team of actually quite um, talented divers and explorers, um, filmmakers, ecologists, aquarists, and all sorts of... um, yeah, technical technical people as well. Right. So, the whole the whole point was to go up there and and see if this concept could work. Um, but all of us were hugely committed to this idea of being in the communities and doing it as an educational. Um, outreach type thing, both sides, educating ourselves on Arctic communities, but also, as I said before when I mentioned the aquariums, um, giving people the opportunity to see marine life in a different way, not just as a resource to eat, but also, you know, for the beauty in which it is because of the situation and the dire situation that our oceans are in. So all of us went there with heartfelt intentions to really draw attention to these issues. So. But at the same time, we had to get onto task, which was essentially, you know, don a dry suit and jump into the frigid Arctic <laughs> waters, which were not yet yeah, pretty cold. And we did snorkel. Pretty cold. Yeah. So we, <laughs> it took us. I mean, it took us a little bit to, obviously, organise the gear and also yeah. to organise the boat. So, I guess the boat, the boat was pretty awesome, but it wasn't ideal for like. Um, that expedition in the sense that it was a a sort of converted fishing boat into a charter vessel and we had a lot of equipment we had a lot of scooters we had a lot of dive gear we had um, dive masters on board for safety so we had to refit the boat slightly to accommodate our tanks and and some of that gear we yeah we just had like a lot of logistical challenges that Mm. took us a bit to work through but basically we we solved it by having um Two teams, and I think the initial idea was that those teams would sort of compete and have a relay race. Um, that was largely unnecessary, and it didn't happen yeah. because we had to work as one solid team in order right. to pull this off. Because we were ten women um, with one snorkeler in the water, you're nine women, yep. and then we had um, a deck boss who would be in charge of how the operations were running that day for safety, um, and then we had everybody kitting up and gearing down. And so on on our best days when we ran right through we would have everybody in the team snorkeling which would take most of the day um, bearing in mind that it's light until almost midnight but really long tiring days um, Mm. just getting ready takes a lot of effort with all that gear some days it was really hot so you'd be sitting around in you know your full on heated lined um, dry suits waiting to get in the water just wishing to get in the water right. because you're so hot and cooking and then, into the freezing yeah Maybe into the freezing yeah, yeah. so <laughs> for me that was just unreal I mean I had never snorkeled in water of that temperature um, nor dived in that temperature so I was probably the most inexperienced in terms of um, 
diving in, in those sorts right. of conditions. Many of my colleagues on the team are Canadian, and so that's just a normal winter dive for them. They don't think twice about it. Wow. Um, and, yeah, so highlights would definitely just snorkeling close to icebergs. Um, not big, big ones, but what we call bergy bits. So, you Daunting? Know, scary? Yeah, um, I would say it was... It was scary in some ways, but the risks were like really, we really thought everything through. I mean, right, yeah. was safety was number one priority, Great. without a doubt. And just um, the coolest thing was just that teamwork that we pulled together. You nice. know, like we were sisters that were just like there watching each other and just had each other's back because mm. knowing that something could go wrong. The Probably the worst thing that happened to me was my dry suit flooded one day when I was snorkeling around a burgy bit of ice. And so we're snorkeling along and we have full-on dry suits and then we're holding on to scooters um, and scooters are there to propel us along. They have their advantages and disadvantages. I think that from a proof of concept perspective, um, sometimes it felt like it might be easier just to snorkel because they sort right. of, you know, don't always feel the best. But um, we would make some make better distance, especially with a bit of current and stuff um, with with the scooter. Right. So that's also a risk because if the scooter I don't know took off or something we'd have to quickly cut the line yeah, so yeah. we'd get into the water with like a knife and everything ready to go so that in case something happened yep. but one day my um, <laughs> and I don't I don't know how no, go on detail tell us anymore. tell us I, I've got to know Sorry, like <laughs> yeah I like so. the detail okay so there was an option if you wanted it in your dry suit where you could have a valve for um, peeing so that would be a tube that you would yep. connect up so if you're on a long dive or something you might have that option I had that option in my suit but didn't have it hooked up to use it but what that meant is that I had down by my inner thigh a little valve um, which sits there essentially redundant in my dry suit and it must have been knocked or something when I dived into the water so I was scooting along and then I just felt this pang in my left thigh like someone had punched me in the thigh with a cold ice block or something oh my gosh and I was like what the and then I just realized what was happening and aborted the dive I was being filmed at that moment so I just looked at the film um the videographer Becky and I was like I'm aborting the dive I'm flooding and I just went straight back to the boat because I wasn't far away from the mothership Mm. so I could get back there quite quickly uh but that was painful and it was probably 10 minutes between the point of impact and me getting out of the water and getting off my suit so by then my inner layer was completely Mm. wet and yeah I mean it's not a gear fault it was just that could happen I mean if if a valve is slightly loose or comes undone then you could get water in so That was probably the worst that happened, so that's not too bad, really, in the scheme of things. No, in the scheme of things, it still sounds pretty lucky. I'm going to ask you one question that you have to do really quickly. Did you have a, a big shift in your mind that you're, with your work-life commitment through doing that trip? Uh, I think it just affirmed for me that I have to keep on seeing different communities and cultures and experiences in order to understand my own 